great service. It is really, uh, when you stop and think about what is behind that liturgy, what's behind that event, I hope you got a sense for that. It's just a great moment when the Lord raises up from among us those who can mediate the presence of Christ. I mean, it really is a very powerful thing. I get this thing down a little bit. Let's as down as it can go. I'm going to have to do it this way. All right. Okay, as Kevin mentioned in the announcement, this I think could be one of the more significant studies. Um, it won't always have the effect of being immediately gratifying, though I hope it will be fun. But it will have the effect of profoundly changing the way you read Scripture. And um, so, rather you're, and, and so let me just say that. that that um, you know, some of you've been a Christian for a long time, and, and I encourage you to really kind of come at this fresh. Some of you've been a Christian not a long time, and um, you're you're already fresh, <laughs> and not in the way that my kids used to use it. Um, but uh, and, and some of it could be. I mean, we're going to really try to. We're really working hard. We put it in PowerPoint. It's going to be very, you know, I think plain. But it doesn't mean the ideas always are going to be plain. I mean, there is a reason why historically. Most heresies, most of the things that have caused the ship, the, the church to go shipwreck, it's almost, it's, it's amazing how predictable it is that it, it comes down to the issue of the old and the new. And, um, and that was, we see, certainly see that in the early church, the Marcionite controversy, and, and I mean, even the, the question of what is scripture, at the very heart of that question was how do we understand the old in relationship to the new. So, and there's a lot of misperceptions about it. So we're going to today, um, I'm going to try to give you an introductive to this whole idea of what we call a redemptive historical interpretation of the Bible, or a covenantal method of interpreting the Bible, or how to read the Bible front and back. You got that part, right? And so, uh, so that's what we're here to do, and um, we're going to get right to it. So I'm glad you're here. Thank you for your interest. And let's see where we go. And some of the great things we're going to be talking about are uh, we're going to be looking at trajectories. We're going to be looking at how these things develop, and I'm going to be getting into that. And some great topics are going to be coming up uh, that you're going to be very um, you know, familiar with. So let's do this. But let's begin in prayer. So God, thank you for the privilege of being here and the, the privilege of your spirit today. We thank you again for the service and of worship and your presence through word and sacrament and particularly today through the, the, uh, the liturgy of, of ordination and, and just the profound implications of that uh, for this local church but also for Christendom as well. To, to rediscover, Lord, some things that, that in this modern era have gotten lost, sadly. And uh, we do pray you'll continue that trend even in this class. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's start with some roundtable conversations. So you're going to talk together, all right? Uh, so look around. Say hello. Say, hey, Billy Bob. Hey, Billy Bob. Hey, Sally Sue. Hey, Sally Sue. Loosen up. Now, this is, should be an easy one after last week. But um, So here we're going to do two little, three little exercises. I'm going to keep them to about a couple minutes each. You're going to have to go quick. It's not going to a lot, but you're going to kind of go around, say a few words. So here we have a passage in Romans that says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Do you believe in the continuation of prophecy? Yes. 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 Revelation 22. I warn anyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to it, by the way, which is the, what is the last book of the Bible? Revelation. And what is the last chapter of the Bible? Matthew 22. 22. I want everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. How many of you believe in prophecy? Raise your hand. Oh, God. How many of you really believe in prophecy? Living, real prophecy. I mean, <laughs> raise your hand. No. Talk about that. What do you think? Go ahead. Seems like a pretty serious uh, inconsistently to me. Y'all talk. Turn around. In your group. One one thing that might help you is maybe somebody could start. Don't don't somebody be a know-it-all right now, please. No know-it-alls right this minute. Could someone at least in the group articulate what they think the real issue is here? The question. 
So let's let's do that. Start with what is the question here, and then secondly, what what how do you answer? It? We don't want to start with the know it all. For is there continuing prophecy today? What do you think? How do we know God's saying? Like, how can we know God? Thank you. How do we know if God's telling me to do what? It's the question of discerning God's will. It's discerning what religions are right and wrong. It's discerning all kinds of things, right? It's a good question. And quite frankly, I don't blame people for flocking into churches that tell them in very clear, confident ways, this is what God's telling you to do. Quit your job. Get married. Do this. Do that. I mean, wouldn't you want to know God's will? So I do not want anyone, I said this in the sermon a hundred times, I think, but man, if we're not charismatic, something's wrong. We need to be charismatic of people who expect the continuing work and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, really. All right? Now, but what's the problem? We got this Romans 12 telling us that we're supposed to be praying for prophecy. And then you got this problem in Revelation 2 that says all prophecy has ceased. Mm-mm. What's the problem? It's a redemptive historical confusion. You know, think about it. We're going to talk about this. But, but is there something unique about the period of the apostles, which Acts, remember the Acts is an actual redemptive historical book. It's, it's part of the Gospels. It's Gospel Part 1, Gospel Part 2. Is our existence now to be equated with that period of time between Christ's incarnation and the apostolic ministry of foundation building. And you'll see. Next. But, but I'm clearly showing you now, you got a, 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 a problem. And the, pro- the answer to your question is not going to be answered by proof texting. I just gave you two proof texts that can take you in either direction. The answer to the problem is we understand how to understand those proof texts in relation to each other in terms of where they located in redemptive history. Question number two. Are we engaged in a holy war today? I mean, Samuel, that's Samuel, not Samuel. Um, uh, we, we, he calls it Jehovah's War. God's War. That's what we mean by holy war. If so, shouldn't the church have a military and be engaged in geopolitical warfare? Deuteronomy 20, man, I don't know how you read this. Look what it says. I mean, when you go out to war against your enemies and see F-18s and, and uh, you know, bombs and, and they're a bigger army than yours, then we're supposed to not be afraid of them. We're supposed to go after it. 
And for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and you should draw near to battle. And then we're going to do some a real, real turnaround. Instead of calling in the you know the, the army, we're going to call in the priest, and they're going to pray. And you're going to see those armies, literally those those F eight teams, just all of a sudden going ballistic and crashing. You're going to see these armies getting a, a horrible immediate plague and they're just going to dissolve on the ground or something's going to happen here. Why not? Matthew 5.39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you in the chat, I mean, that's that's kind of a, a war, isn't it? You know? But he's, even he said, I don't care if, uh, not even an F-18. I mean, if they just slap you on the cheek, you know, you're going to do nothing. You know, the, and then he goes on to, you know, Turn to him the other also. Or Matthew 26, put your sword back into its place. You know what was interesting to me is all the apostles were carrying swords. I mean, that, that just strikes you. I don't know if you thought about it. People running around with swords. You know? This is not a political statement, but they were packing, right? Um, and that was not a political statement. Don't you dare take it. <laughs> just a fun way to have some fun. <laughs> For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Clearly Christ wanted nothing to do with the sword. Now, is the Old Testament the same religion as the New Testament? Yes. That's kind of the question I'm asking. Well, not so fast. Maybe it's not. Have you figured it out yet? It's not. And note second AD Marcion controversy. Now, what's that about? That's that's just basically an issue of of um, you know this idea of Israel and its continuing and its march for geopolitical land. And therefore, what would they expect of Messiah to be, do you think? They would expect him to overturn Caesar, transform Rome politically, make it into Israel. Talk about it. What's the, what are we looking for? What really is the question, and then how, how do you deal with it? Go. Yeah, I mean, turn around and talk. Remember, don't forget to get the real question. What's the longing? Okay, hopefully the know-it-alls, there's no know-it-all yet, we're just talking about the question. What's, what's the human heart asking here? What are we wanting here in this question? Did y'all get that one? And then what's, how do you deal with this problem? Two, two seemingly opposite answers. Well, yeah, we got a pastor, they're always know-it-alls. Man, we didn't get you out of here. You got two pastors over there. Poor thing. How'd you get stuck between this, like an Oreo? All right. Okay, tell me what really the question is. What really is the question? And if, if you're not ask, asking and praying it, I don't know where you're living. What's the question that's behind the question? Anybody? What kind of war What kind of what? War, yeah, that's a, that's it. What kind of a war? What we were saying over there? We want the promise. Yes, we are. Lord, where is that promised land? And if you answer that, man, I'll do anything for you to get there, Lord. I'll do anything. I'm, I'm on board, just like Peter. Pull out your whatever, whatever it is that you need to pull out. You're going to pull it out because that promised land is absolutely worthy. Of wanting. There's nothing wrong with wanting the kingdom of God to come and to give us a place that's sweet with kindness and gentleness and sweetness and love and care. Oh gosh, if you don't long for it right now, I don't know where you're living. So that's the question. And it's a good one. And we need to, when we engage anyone on either side or either perspective, this is probably a little exercise of how you engage people out there. You just don't go to the answer. You really uh, affirm the question. 
I encourage you that. Never, ever, that's a nice little rule of thumb, you know. Never answer first, but what, you know, it's counseling technique, everything, but you know, you, you validate the question. You, you say, man, that's it. And then you, you might even make the question even harder than they asked. Like what I like to do. That's a good question. And it even gets worse. The scripture sucks at this, I think. You know, and let's see what they say. I think I had to put something. I'd say it a little better, more positive than that. I'm around for this. Okay. What's the answer? Do we believe in the promised land? Yeah. yeah. And is it coming? Yeah. Yes. Well, is, are, we, are we the same religion as Deuteronomy 20? Yes. Yeah. Well, how can you reconcile Deuteronomy 20? It's set, I mean, come on, let's just put yourself in another person's shoe a little bit. We call this our scriptures. Our scripture says do things that are, and this is, I, I was really nice on this one. I didn't talk about the scriptures. I think that, that Kevin talked about, boo-hoo, Kevin, where are you, Kevin? In a sermon the other day in Samuel, they're supposed to dash their heads upon the rocks and all that stuff. And Samuel, wasn't that, wasn't that in the sermon the other day? I mean, how do you read something like that and say, oh, that's Christian? So think about that question. Is it Christian? Can I say it is Christian? But it says to the Bible to go and destroy all of them. Don't leave one alive. Total annihilation. And if you say, well, it's not Christian, then it's not the same religion, is it? We need a better way of reading the Bible to where we can say both and. Yep. That's, that's not where we are now in redemptive history. But it was our forefathers and mothers who were there. And we affirm in that context what is being done, even if now we would not. By the way, this is one of the things that differentiates us from Islam. Um, and I say it very con- candidly. I've read the whole thing and interacted with it, took a course on it, made a paper on this very issue. And the fact of the matter is, without a redemptive historical hermeneutic, we would be suffering the same problem right now. And we still do because people don't know that hermeneutic. But at least orthodoxy knows it. And we know that there is no geopolitical holy war anymore in Christianity. Constantine, in that sense, though, maybe rightly motivated, and I don't like being a self-righteous historicist and passing judgment on people in past histories because they live in different times. But at the same time, we do need to say we don't think that was right to use swords to build the kingdom of God. But we can say that we're Christians in reading Deuteronomy 20. How are you going to do that? I hope I got your interest. If you don't know how to say it, you're going to be in trouble next time you're talking. Finally, are Christians held accountable to obey the Old Testament law? Romans 7, we are released from the law. Okay, phew. Ten Commandments, gone. <laughs> Having died to that which held us captive so that we are serving a new way of the Spirit. Oh man, that sounds great. Just listen to yourself. Listen to the Spirit. Follow the Spirit. You don't need an organization to tell you what the Spirit says anymore. Just follow your Spirit, man. And not the old way of written codes. Get that Bible and burn it. Praise Jesus. I'm alive. Okay? Let's be honest. That's there. It's there. Right in our New Testament. And now in Timothy, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. What? Paul, you wrote Rebel Romans, now you're telling me it's good. Now how are you going to reconcile that? I'm not going to turn us to, to the small group. What is the Old Testament all about? Law and judgment. Is the, is the Old Testament all about law and judgment? The New Testament all about gospel and grace? That's another way of kind of dealing with this issue. And how many people do you think think, yep, that's it. See, this is a, another problem in understanding redemptive historical context. So, here we go. How many books are in the Bible? Yeah, I kind of gave the edge here. But how many would you have, how many would you have said one? Maybe somebody that's a real uppity type of you know, reformed, uh, presuppositionalist, whatever else I can say, I'm a millennialist Christian, like Jennifer. <laughs> uh, that's right. Okay, and how many would say that there are two? 
Old Testament, New Testament, and how many would say that there are, and I sure hope my Sunday school class is not going to get me on this, it is 66, right? Okay, thank you all your Sunday school teachers going, yes. Okay, so we got an issue there. Um, how, would we, how do we even think about the Bible? You know, like I'm going to suggest that the answer is, well, one with many chapters and two parts. That would be maybe the way I would suggest we think about it. It's a pretty significant thing. If you're new to Christianity, um, you might want to know. If you're old Christianity, you might want to know that, that at the very heart of liberalism, and, that, and, and that if you want to put a tag on it, and some of the ways in which that, that spirituality tends to interpret Scripture, is to, to understand or to diminish the oneness of the Bible. There are many, many authors, all within their geopolitical context, and therefore they are read very independently. Um, and in relation to one another, even if in the same uh, tradition. Um, but this idea of a divinely inspired one God is the author. So that, I'm going to say, it's, a, it's one author. This is not the course that's going to talk about our theology about the inspiration of Scripture, but we're going to start with that premise in this class. But like a good novel, we must learn to read the Bible both forwards and backwards as to allow the more developed portions to inform the underdeveloped portions, even if the embryonic portions will give meaning to the mature and even how to interpret the later, more mature portions. Thus, there is a single biblical theology of the Bible that will inform the way we interpret a given passage. So any of you, uh, if you've studied developmental psychology, developmental Uh, physiology, whatever the developmental idea is. Sociology, um, I'm a big fan of that generally, but but you you know a little bit of what I'm talking about. When I I listen to my now 20, well now he's 31 I guess, year old son, it's, it's, and and maybe other parents could appreciate this at this stage, it's, it's amazing how helpful it is before I react to remember who he is and his very it's kind of core. I mean, if you, if, well, you don't, but, but, but when I know my son the way I know my son, and I remember him as a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a five-year-old, a ten-year-old, a fifteen-year-old, and all these sort of developmental stages, and I can see in my mind, as I think any parent can, you can really begin to see behavior and mannerisms and, and relationship to when it was a little rawer and a little more exposed, and it will frame it for you. You know, is this, and I won't go, I'm not talking about Stephen now, but is, is this, uh, you know, it, it can make the difference between how do I interpret that behavior or that reaction or that whatever it is. And you will interpret it with a develop, developmental framework. Here's what I know in a very fundamental and basic way about my son. I learned it before he got these layers over and put over and over it. Genuine layers that are very much him now. I'm not saying that those layers are no longer him. They come from nurture. Nurture not just for me as a parent, but from their neighbors and their friends and their schools and their professors and their coaches and their you know music instructors. And boy, it's just layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. But somewhere back when, sitting in that crib, uh, and now we have our first baby, you know, little little daughter. At least now we're, we get these little texts about every other day or day, showing us some little picture. And usually they're Megan, the mother. And we just yesterday commented about how, gosh, she's she's so is so. Uh, at least you're in here. What was the word you said? I think you're in here. I don't know. What was it you saw? You picked up this like this perception that she has of her baby and the way she just sees things that are so neat, right? Is that fair enough? For what you said. She never likes me to call her in public, so that's why I'm doing it for her. Um, and so, um, and it's true. She did this the other day, and it's just this kind of, oh, she's saying this to me as that baby's going. You see, it's just, it's just there. Well, I would love for you to begin to read the Bible like this. Or if you've read a good mystery, what makes it so wonderful? I mean, first chapter, you've got... You know, some some interesting observations that you just know 
are going to come out later. But you, but if you don't, if you forgot chapter one, if I just picked up and read chapter thirteen, I would probably miss the whole point. And if I didn't miss the whole point, I certainly wouldn't see the gravity of it. But if you've been reading this thing and this theme or this picture or this image or whatever it is in your novel, if it just keeps showing up in a way that's forming a trajectory, then you're being trained by that how to, how to listen as you keep reading. Does this make sense? It's, 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 it's just, this is no different from the Bible. How foundational that relates to furniture. And we have a church today, generally, that is redemptive historically illiterate. And I can give you a lot of historical reasons for that. But what happened to, to modern evangelicalism, the proof texting, and the, all the stuff that's happened. I mean, I can venture to say, I can't tell you how many people come to this church and say, God, you're the first church that preaches the, three, preaches the Old Testament. I mean, I don't want to put critical on anybody else. I'm not saying that. I'm sure they have things that we don't. That's not my point. It's just amazing how ignorant people are about the Old Testament. And then wonder why they pick up with the New Testament, part two, and they have no idea how to construct an argument about why you would baptize an infant. Why you would believe in the elder. I mean, it's only been one of the most consistent themes of the Old Testament. And when Paul makes the case in Romans that this is not a new religion, everything we're doing is in continuity with the old. Didn't mean to say the same, though, did it? But it's in continuity. Then we have the task of figuring out what's the hermeneutic trick that would make sense of why Paul went from here and go out and destroy Canaanites to here, pick up your word of God and pray in spiritual battle. How do we get there? How do we get there when he says, you know, not all Jews are Jews? Speaking of one geopolitical and another spiritual. And how does he link that to the theology of remnant? And the quotes that he uses, if you take the time in Romans to look back at them, are about remnants. Off you go. Trajectory. So redemptive historical understanding, that is, revelation is the interpretation of redemption, and it must therefore unfold itself in installments of as redemption does. Now here's what you're going to begin to pick up. I'm going to start giving you some little keys that will unlock this thing for you, the rest of the course. And we, as, as presenters, will be trying to help do this in various topic-specific ways. But you'll, you'll notice a pattern, what's called promissory word, historical event, and instructional word. There's a word-deed-word kind of developmental history. There's, you'll find this over and over, a kind of, thus saith the Lord, there is a historical event that will, that will then be, it's crucial that event, by the way. We are historical Christians. We believe in the historicity of the Bible. You know, it's, it's interesting. Just the other day, there's a lot of controversy about Isaiah and his, and his location. Um, if you go to the uh, modern scholarship and some aspects of modern scholarship, major. Isaiah is one of the major issues of, of controversy. Of course, you can see why, even from a Jewish perspective. I mean, you, you almost don't like reading the Gospel of John when you read Isaiah, you know, some of the passages there about Messiah. Um, but there are other reasons for it. And just the other day, I don't know if you noticed, there was a big archaeological uh, finding, and they found literally a signature of Isaiah, the prophet, in a clay. In a, in, in a clay, uh, and I won't go into why that's their story. There's still some discussion about it, whether it is or isn't. But we believe in historical Isaiah, for instance. You know, and these events that took place. We certainly believe in the Battle of Captivity, we believe in the Flood, we believe in all these things. And they will not only just be events, that were actually the salvific events, but they will also begin to insert into the mystery data that will help frame and regulate what you believe salvation is. I mean, it's no, it's no, no surprise, for instance, that when you think of the Exodus, you think of, of a salvation event. 
And yet the Exodus will frame it in the New Testament as related to being set free. Just the idea of being free. Don't you think that sells today? I mean, most people think Christianity bonds, bounds, you know. How is it that Christ, Paul will say, for freedom, Christ has set you free? And how is that all plausible to Paul a Jew? Except that he knew his scripture as a Jew and understood freedom to be one of the primary trajectories of the Old Testament. On we go. Word, deed, word. That's going to say a lot. It's going to talk about how we believe in the Spirit. Today we talked about prophecy. Word, deed, word. Prophets, foreshadowing Christ, deed, apostles, word. You're getting some patterns there. There's a developmental history of the gospel from an acorn to a tree. This is, uh, how well can you see that? This is a, a bit of an overview of what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> come on, get a little here. Um, let, let me just kind of show you, uh, say a few things here. And I'm reading what's, what I put there below. The cross represents a complex set of events, including the birth, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And the outpouring of the Spirit, that's still there. Pentecost, as well as the abolishment of the Sinai Covenant, the establishment of the New Covenant, in continuity with the Abrahamic Covenant, and the inauguration of the Messianic Covenant, Kingdom. I should have said in continuity the Abrahamic and Mosaic, because I want to tell you later. But it just started there. And that was Paul's argument in Fruits and Galatians. But did you hear what I just said? If you look at the cross, think right there of that event, that word, deed, that's the acts of redemptive history and history. And that includes the, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. That's still redemptive history going on. That's all there. That's, that's part of what's going on here. You have a very similar parallel in the Old Testament with the with the ex, you know the word you know Abraham and then you know the, the genealogy of the, the the tenfold genealogy of of, of uh, Genesis that eventually leads you to Moses and then you have this it's all with this word of preparation this word looking for the the Shekinah spirit to come down upon the waters that you started with in Genesis one. And do you think it was an accident that the flood is described in this manner of a, of, of a dove hovering, fluttering over the waters, coming down upon the earth? And then the temple with the dove, the Shekinah glory hovering over the spirit, hovering over the temple? Go read Genesis 1 verse 2 and you'll know where that all began. Or this idea of a sacrificial system? Go read Genesis 3 and you'll know where that began. And this idea of a, of a, a Messiah figure? It's just all there. So what you see in the cross right there, think in your head the act or the historical action of redemption, which goes all the way from birth through Pentecostal faith, foundation building, Acts. And then you have the post-apostolic era that will bring you to, and all of this is in the age to come. The age, what he calls the new age. And the, and the age which is to come. If you're in the apostolic, if you're in the cross area, then he would speak of it in the future, wouldn't he? But then he was also talking about it already coming. The kingdom has come, but not yet come. It's you know he's, he came and said the kingdom of God is near, and yet he spoke of the last days. Well, here we are, apostolic post. I'm sorry, post apostolic era, last days after the ascension, and in that there was this idea, Ephesians two, where there's this foundation activity of God, supernatural miraculous stuff signs and wonders and then the post-apostolic era and it's amazing what you don't see in the epistles that you saw in Acts you see no command 
to you know to, to do many of the things that they were commanded to do in Acts. Okay, so I hope you're getting it. Think about it this way: both the Ark and the Sinai Covenant were temporary kingdom models. Now I know we think of the Ark as you know, it, it, but it's in type and that it was geopolitical. Both both the Mosaic. Uh, uh, a covenant and the noetic covenant are geopolitical. There is land, even if that land was a boat deck. It, you could say, where's the kingdom of God? Oh, it's defined by those parameters over there. It was a caliphate in the in a New Testament sense. But those two instances, geopolitical, um, were, were this Ark and the Sinai Covenant were temporary because they were typological kingdoms. We'll find out later. And this beautiful mystery. It was it's like a tutor, Paul says. Giving you a kind of concrete picture that would later become fuller and developed. But it's like when you're a kid, you know, when you're, when you're a parent, you, you give them something concrete to play with. But that concrete one day turns into a concept. Even if it's real. So that's the second doctrine. The Old Testament was written directly to those living under the Sinai Covenant, recalling redemptive history prior to the Sinai Covenant and anticipating redemptive history subsequent to it. So you hear both then. You'll hear people like, say, Moses. You know, when he talks about this this law, he says one day it's going to be the law, you're going to be circumcised circumcised of heart. The circumcision that's a concrete is now going to become spiritual. Now that tells you when I get to Colossians and he relates circumcision to baptism that saves us, okay, I've got to read it. I remember what Moses said. When I hear about baptism of John and then the baptism of Christ and the Holy Spirit, oh, I'm getting what Moses said. When I hear Jeremiah talking about a new covenant where the, the laws can be written on our hearts, oh, I understand now. It was typological. Or this promised land in Hebrews chapter 11 that was the Canaan, was the uh, Jerusalem, you know, over there in the promised land of, of the ancient Near East. Oh, I get what's going on. And the New Testament was written to those living under the apostolic era of the New Covenant, anticipating the developments of the post-apostolic era and the consummation of the kingdom, ultimately, of course, in the coming of Christ. So there's your, there's your picture right there that we're going to be playing around with a lot. The nature of the Bible. Um, now we get into some other issues. There was never a time in all redemptive history when salvation was transacted apart from the forensic oriented covenant of God. We're going to have a whole lesson on temple later. But there was never a time. The use of the words old and new covenant respectively throughout the Bible, but always covenant. (coughs) Jeremiah in the old covenant context anticipates coming the new covenant. Paul in the new covenant context refers to the veil of the old covenant. In other words, there was a mystery. He calls it a mystery all the time. It was lifted when Christ came. There's continuity there, you see. From mystery to fulfillment or, or, or fuller revelation. By the Christ new covenant. Paul's use of the word naw, nomos, for covenant after the same use of the law uh, after, uh, after the prophets reference to the book of the covenant. And so he literally uses the word, I'm sure the word of nomos, while we can use nomos in Greek uh, in the New Testament with respect to what the prophets called them, the, what they were doing in the uh, Pentateuch. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for covenant, bereath, is used at least 289 times, just to kind of give you a, wow, I think it's about covenant. Um, in the New Testament, the fulfillment motif. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come to fulfill, not to abolish, but to fulfill it. Christ, the mediator of a new covenant. But how would you know and understand the new covenant without the old covenant? I mean, what would we do with the book of Hebrews? Or Romans? How much would we not understand about our salvation if it weren't for that? And of course, the book of Hebrews is about the hardest book to preach because I preached it before. Now Craig's preaching it. It's because I know that most people are very, and I, of course, I had the advantage of you know studying all week, but um, but I know you come in here and there's just not a lot of familiarity with the Old Testament, maybe. You know, and again, I assume that many of you are not coming from churches when you were a kid like me. 
and yet he's sitting here writing to people who, were, who literally memorized most of it. And so we got a challenge. What is a covenant? It is a gracious condescension by God in order to establish a meaningful and flourishing relationship with humanity that is based on objective terms in order to preserve the gracious nature of human redemption in relation with God. Now this is very important. We've got five more minutes. They're coming early. Um, it's very important, but listen to the way our, conf- our confession of faith says it. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their creator, yet they could never have, full, have any fruition of Him as their blessedness reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which He hath both pleased to express by way of covenant. Now, that word condescension is not meant to be what we use it as a negative thing. It, it's the picture of me the other day going to my neighbor's house. The dog is petrified. If you know anything about dogs, you hit the ground. And you get in their level, and you do not go too quickly towards them. And you just sit there and coax a little bit and be sweet and, and just let them. They, they're dying to fellowship with you, these dogs. Dogs are sucking it all. But you, you, they're afraid of you. Well, that's what this word condescension means. A God who comes in here and puts himself in, 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 in accessibility to him with the gospel. Contractual, it's a contract. And the reason that's important is objective. If you, if, if you didn't have a covenant, I'm going to here to tell you, you would not have any basis for assurance of salvation. It'd all be based on your subjectivity and your subjective feelings, thoughts, knowledge, experience, behavior, whatever it was. But when you can find yourself, locate yourself in a contract, and when you're told that that contract was fully satisfied, that's the word righteousness, that's a legal term, and that therefore by faith alone in Christ, I am now righteous, even though my emotions tell me otherwise, my behavior tells me otherwise, my best friend and roommate reminds me of it, the world reminds me of it, my professor reminds me of it, my job reminds me of it, I have a covenantal statement, decree, not guilty. And it's because of this covenant. And this is one of the most vital trajectories that we'll need to understand going through the old and new is how we relate to the covenant. This forensic, legal righteousness before the law emerges very, very important. And you may say, well, I hate the law. Man, the psalmist said, I love the law. If you only understood, you would love it. I love the law. It both and at the same time shows me how glorious God is and what moral clarity in an age of moral muck is and yet not in a way is to condemn me but to save me in Christ I love the law and if we don't understand how to interpret from the old to the new we'll hate it advantages of covenant method of interpretation it guards against moralizing guards against the theology of proof texting uh, can recognize the significance of certain passages within its own redemptive context uh, because of the past. Guards against subjectivistic interpretations. In other words, there's actually a way to go to the Bible and discern what this means, but you're probably going to have to read it with a novel approach. You're probably going to have to go to the New Testament and say, well, how are we going to understand this? I, it looks like it says this. Oh, if only we understood it in context. Not only of its own covenant, but how that covenant relates to the promises of the Old Covenant. I don't have, obviously, time to do this. This is another one. This gets into some real specifics. And, uh, again, i got three minutes, two, maybe. Um, but here's what I'd want you to pick up most of all. If you were to compare the Old and New Testament in this way, the way I'm talking about with a covenantal kind of framework, you would realize that, that let's just talk. start with the Adam. You would think of, for, for instance, the whole idea of, 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 of the Sinai Covenant. It is typological in both directions. It wants to point back to the Adamic uh, covenant, the covenant that was made that Adam, what we call the covenant of works, even as, and it will do that by virtue of a geopolitical covenant within the covenant. And what is it going to do? 
you're going to find out through that geopolitical covenant, that is a covenant that is, says things like, if you love God, you'll be, right, you'll be rich, and if you don't love God, you'll be poor. If you love God, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be, you know, this, and you're going to have land, and it's going to be full of milk and honey, and if you don't love God, you're going to be dead. It's a physical, typological, uh, geopolitical covenant on the one level. And it points you back to the Adamic covenant that we are saved by our works, and we are. I'm going to get that last. And it exasperates the living heck out of us of Israel and us as, as we live in Israel's history. By the time you get to the promised land and they never really get settled there with peace and happiness, you begin to discover in human history that I can't save myself. And, and Jesus just picks up on that when he says, you've heard it said, but I'm going to tell you, if you haven't figured it out already, you are doomed. <laughs> If you're resting in yourself. Just look at their history of trying to get into the promised land. Heck, Moses didn't even get in there. What makes you think you're going to get in there? You know, and when you got there, just go read the history of Judges. I mean, that was like, like you know, ground warfare every single day. I mean, they never got it. Not really. When they did, they got lost. They got Babylon and captivities and all that stuff. So, so what does it do? It points you back to the endemic covenant. And then at the same time, through the temple, through, so that's all the geopolitical civil laws, but then through the temple it points forward to Jesus Christ. Where we begin to see that they were saved. The Old Testament people were saved spiritually. They weren't saved uh, geopolitically. But they sure were saved spiritually when they went into the temple and there was an atonement on a sacrificial lamb received by grace or faith alone. And so that brings us into this next topic. Two covenants clarified. Some people think, how many of you think, be honest, the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant, and that means Adam and, and Jesus? Raise your hand. All right, you're smarter than I was. No, the first covenant is Adam. Made with a man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him his posterity upon condition, keyword, of perfect and personal obedience. The second is the covenant of grace, redemptive, Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offered unto sinners of life the salvation of Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, promised to give him unto all things that are ordained unto eternal life, his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe in him. So, now here's the question. Did God just change his mind? Covenant one, Adam. Bad idea. Jesus, we screwed on that one, man. Holy Spirit, why didn't you give me a little more wisdom on this one? Or was it decreed all, all along? A covenant that would expose the nature and the character of God and our dependence upon Him in a manner which would then point us to the cross. So here's something I'm going to leave you with. It's very important. We are saved by works through faith in Jesus Christ that is a gracious promise offered to all who would believe. That's a clarification. In other words, if you're going to understand Paul and Romans, if you're going to understand the New Covenant, if you're going to understand the Gospel, you're not going to say, well, God is just a tolerant God. You're not going to say, ah... He's over petty things like, you know, loving your neighbor. Come on. You're a great guy. You're not going to diminish the holiness of God. And if you do, then your salvation doesn't mean anything anyway. And you're going to just be kind of you're like God too. Humanism. No, you're going to say that somehow in this incredible equation of the covenant, there's grace. And here it is. And this is a way of describing marriage Clyde. This is my last slide. The difference between the pre-redemptive and the redemptive covenant is not then that the latter substitutes promise of grace for law. The difference is rather that the redemptive covenant adds promise to law. Redemptive covenant is simultaneously a promise administration of guaranteed blessings and a law administration of blessings dependent on obedience with the latter administration of blessing dependent on obedience foundational 
The weakness of the traditional design, covenant of works and covenant of grace, again, if it's misunderstood, is what he's talking about. Not, I don't think, what we just read in our confession. For their pre-redemptive covenant is that it fails to take account of the continuity of the law principle. See that word? Continuity again in redemptive revelation. The principles of works continues into redemptive covenant administration such that the blessings of redemption are secured by the works of a fe- fe- of what? Federal head? You know anything about that? Well, only if you've looked at Adam and understood Adam and that vow that he took. It's a federal representative vow in the Old Testament. Coherence can be achieved in covenant theology only by subordination of grace to law. And what he means by that? So what does this dual covenant of the Old Testament do? It directs us back to the covenant of works geopolitically to exasperate us. It directs us forward to the covenant of grace to, to show us the promise. And the distinction you're going to learn now, and this is a little secret getting ahead, but if I were reading the Old Testament, one of the things I'd do is I'd, made is I'd notice very carefully who takes the vow of the covenant. If you're looking at Abraham, and you go back to those passages in Genesis 15, who takes the vow of the covenant that God makes with Abraham? God, through that flaming torch, remember that? If you go to the Sinai Mountain, where all that thunder and lightning was going on, who takes the vow of the covenant? The people. And they do it with fear and trembling. Now you're going to go to Hebrews 12, or is it 10, and you're going to say, we don't have the kind of covenant that that the people took under Sinai with all that fear and thundering. Thank God we don't. We have the kind of covenant that God made with Abraham. And Paul's going to make that point too. But it's not that Moses was bad covenant, remember? It's a geopolitical level covenant. That proved their undoing, even as there is a redemptive grace covenant that goes through the Mosaic covenant, starting all the way back with Adam and through Noah, Abraham, etc. And now we're, you're getting a picture. All right, I do have to stop. What I wish we'd had is five more minutes. Can you think of ways this will change the way you read the Bible compared to what is often popular? I wish we had a chance to really talk about that. And what Old Testament conflicts bother you and how might this class and that it explores the various trajectories in continuity and discontinuity and the development of integrations help you do this. I hope that you'll go home today and start thinking about some of those questions. Some of those big questions that you have. And you'll be surprised how many questions you have about Christianity or the faith and some of the big issues that your friends are asking you. And this class hopefully will give you some tools to answer them. So may God bless us. Amen.